0: Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I pray that uh, as we gather here today that we would constantly remember that these are not just mere words that we sing. As we come and we gather and we sit here to listen to the preaching of Your Word, that these aren't just words that we're to delight in. That these aren't Words that were just to say, gee, that was that was nice, that was good, I, I like that. And then walk out of here and not be changed by it, not be motivated to step forward in faith, not be willing to live it out. God, so often we think that there's some sort of distinction between the call to salvation and the call to discipleship. God, I pray that there's one thing that we walk out of here with, it's, it's that we realize that that's just not the case. To call to discipleship is not optional. It's for all of us. And God, we know that you are a, a good and perfect God, a giver of grace, who always gives us the grace to walk in obedience. So even when we think it's hard, even though we're scared, even though we don't know how we're going to go about doing it, May we always remember that You give the grace for us to walk in obedience. And I pray that we would desire that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. That's page 836 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Um, I'm going to be preaching on Mark 1, 16 through 20. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 because there's there's some contextual things I want us to be able to pick out. So, let's look at Mark 1:14 through 20. So, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand; repent and believe in the gospel." Last week, we looked at Jesus' very first sermon, this summation of all that Jesus taught, condensed into one verse. And he said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here, Jesus, the king, is calling us to repent. He's calling us to faith. He's calling us to follow. The king has come, and he's saying, This is what it means to have the kingdom, this is what it means to believe. And this morning, we're going to look at a second call, this call to discipleship, a call that naturally flows out of his call to salvation. But in reality, these aren't distinct calls. It's not one and then the other. They're really one and the same. The call to salvation is a call to discipleship. And this is a big deal. This is especially a big deal for us. Comfortable, complacent, middle class, easygoing, never having to suffer, entertaining ourselves to death Americans. This is a big deal for us. Because we want to take this passage and we want to make the call to discipleship optional. We want to look at it, we want to read and say, you know what, Jesus was talking to his disciples here. He's talking to those who would be Apostles. And we might say, well, that, that, that might apply to those who are called specifically into ministry, but not for me, not for the average guy here. That discipleship thing, that, that's optional. But in reality, it's for everyone. When we do this, we ignore the one who calls us. We set conditions and parameters on our own willingness to follow, and therefore we, we reject God's process for our growth. We drag our feet and we delay and we think that obedience can come when I'm ready, when I'm willing, and and you just hold on there, God, and we make the purpose of discipleship voluntary. That we can take it or we can leave it. It doesn't really matter. We can either elect to do it or not, depending on how we feel that day, depending on how it fits into our schedule. And we want all the benefits that come with being a disciple of Christ. But we don't want to pay the cost of what it means to follow. I mean, think about it. We don't want to go to hell, right? I mean, who here? Anybody want to go to hell? No. We don't want to go to hell, but but we don't want to forsake our beloved sin. Right? That one thing that keeps us from Christ. We want to see our family in heaven, right? We want to be with them forever, but we're afraid to share the gospel with them. We want things like streets of gold. We want pearly gates. We want mansions. We want banqueting tables. We want the tree of life, but we want it here and now as well, right? We want the kingdom of God, but we want our own kingdoms too. And so we want the gifts of God, but we don't want the giver. We interpret passages like this one as, as a special call to the chosen few, to the disciples, to those who are called specifically to ministry, and not the outworking, the natural response to the call of salvation. And though you can argue, yeah, he's he is clearly talking to those who would follow him. He's talking to Andrew. He's talking to Simon. He's talking to James and John. I just want you to think about A little bit down the road in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, where Jesus will say to a crowd, if anyone, and he says, anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Discipleship for anyone who would receive the gift, the call of salvation, is simply not optional. Not at all. I don't want you guys to think that, that because your Bible has a double space, a subheading, and then a verse marker, that there's some big separation between 14 and 15 and 16 through 20, right? Those were supplied later on. It was helpful to kind of break it down to see those things, but they're not really there, right? It wasn't in the original manuscripts, Mark is telling us that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and passing along the sea of Galilee he saw Simon and Andrew and said to them follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's that connected. It's that close. The two sections are are tied together by this and. This conjunction. It says Jesus came and preached. Conjunction and. Passing by the sea. He saw and he called. It's one fluid statement. It's not as though Jesus began his ministry by preaching the gospel, and then he had this other agenda, this aside thing, where he was going to call some disciples all the while preaching the gospel. So there's one thing here, and there's another thing here. No, Jesus is preaching the gospel in order to call disciples. See the difference there? The purpose of preaching the gospel is not to have people saved and then another purpose over here on the side to make disciples, to make those who would actually follow him. He preached the gospel of God so that all who were called would follow him as his disciples. There's no, there's no bifurcation. There's no distinction there. I like baseball, and so here's a little baseball analogy for you. What's the purpose of playing in the minor leagues. Why does a guy elect to play in the minors? To get to the, to get to the majors. Right. That's the whole purpose. To get to the majors. What happens if there's a guy and he's he's playing really well? mean his batting average is up, you know, he's feel he's he's like a golden glover of minor leagues, even though they don't really have those. You know, he's just he's starting to make a name for himself, and then he gets a call from the bigs and he says, Never mind. I, just go on without me. Uh, yo, things are going well for me right here. I'm just going to stay. You just keep playing the game. You stay up in the majors, I'll stay down in the minors. You think this guy's an idiot, right? He's a lunatic. That's not why we do that. I mean, the whole purpose of playing in the minors is to make it to the majors. Or if he goes a little farther, say he receives the call and he gets up to the majors, but when the coach says, hey, Quinn, get in the game, he's like, no thanks, man. I'm good here. I'm good right here. I, I have... I have made my goal. I've achieved it. I'm in the majors now. I've got this jersey. It's got my name on the back. I've got a locker in the locker room. I get to sit next to all these big league sluggers and these golden glovers and these Cy Young award winners. You know, I get to travel with the team, do all this stuff. Heck, I even get to sign balls from some poor little kids that don't know any better. They they just see me as a a player on the team, and and that's good enough for them. I mean, this is all that I want. Again, you would think they're crazy, right? You don't go to the majors to sit on the bench. Players play. Players get in the game, right? They do what they're called to do. Are they scared at times? Absolutely. Do they make mistakes? You bet they do. Do they get themselves into tough spots? All the time. Have you watched the game? But nevertheless, players play. And if they got there and they refused to get in the game, it wouldn't be long before they got sent back down or they got sent home. That's, that's not the point. It's the same way with this call to salvation, this call to discipleship, right? To bear the name of Christ as a Christian is to bear the name of Christ as a disciple, to live it out, to leave and follow, right? Right? This is not a call just to repent and believe. It's also a call to leave and follow. They're one and the same. I mean, we talked about this last time. Repentance is not just confession. It's not just recognizing that I'm a sinner, right? Of course I'm a sinner. I sin, right? But repentance is turning from your sin. It's leaving it. It's hating your sin. It's walking away from all those things that had idols, those idols in your heart to follow Christ. Leave and follow. Repent and believe. There's not really any difference. The call to discipleship simply is not optional. And we don't get to choose because we're not in a position to choose. Right? You are not the authority over when and where and how you are a disciple. Jesus, secondly, identifies himself as the authority over discipleship. And we often we gloss over this passage and we don't think about the significance of what Jesus is saying in verse 17. He says, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, follow God. He doesn't say, follow my example as I try to follow the moral teachings of God. He says, follow me. And in this day, that is unheard of. In, in Jewish tradition, The religious leaders never said, follow me. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, never. In fact, if you wanted to be a Pharisee, you went and you talked to them and said, hey, I'm up for this, I'm game for this. You went to a teacher and you asked him to teach you. He never said, hey, you, you, come and follow me. It's the same thing in biblical example. I mean, Noah, Noah's there preaching That, of this impending doom, that this flood is coming, and he's begging people to get in the ark. Just get in the boat. Come on. Get in the boat. But he never said, follow me. Moses. If ever there was a leader for the people of Israel, it was Moses. Moses never said, follow me. They followed the pillar of cloud and fire. They followed God. Abraham. He didn't say to his family, Follow me as I go into the land that God has promised me. I mean, think about it. Joshua didn't. The judges didn't. The prophets didn't. Not even David, the king of Israel, said, follow me. No one said, follow me. It's absolutely unheard of in biblical history for any man to call another to follow him apart from the delegated authority of God. And God would always make it clear. He would speak, and they would follow God through the leadership of this person. Only Jesus takes this kind of authority for himself. He speaks, not with the authority of man, but with the authority of God. I mean, here Jesus gives a command with a promise, and he guarantees that their obedience will result in blessing. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And only God can do this. But yet that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus spoke and they left absolutely everything. Everything. They left their jobs. They left their possessions. They left their family. They hired servants. I mean there's poor Zebedee just standing there in the boat with the nets in his hand next to his servants while his sons are just walking off. He's like, Hey, what about me? And I don't think it's it's because they didn't like their jobs. I don't think it's because they were just ready for something new. I mean, this is because Jesus speaks with authority. This would be the equivalent of Jesus walking in this room and saying, "Caleb, follow me." And you get up and you leave everything. You leave your keys, you leave your car, you leave your ID, you leave your wallet, what little money you have in there, your credit cards, you know? You just your cell phone, your computer, Anything that you have, you leave it all. You walk away. You keep your clothes, but, you know. But you walk away from everything. I mean, think about it. It's walking away from house. It's walking away from your dog. It's walking away from your family. It's walking away from anything that you find identity in. Your job, your favorite TV shows, all of it. Gone. Anything that you might identify yourselves with, they walked away from right there in their desire. To follow Christ. And they did it without question. They did it without challenge. They did it without delay. Who does that? Nobody does that. I don't do that. And the reason they did it is not because they're super faithful. But because Jesus is the authority over discipleship. He calls and they follow. Jesus shows here that he has authority over people. He speaks and those who are called answer. He says it later in John 10, verses 27-30. through 30. He says, My sheep hear My voice. I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of My hand. There you see that call to salvation, right? My Father has given them to Me. is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of My hand. I and the Father are one. He says, I and the Father are one. And guys... The folks that heard Him picked up stones to stone Him because they said He he was blaspheming. He was putting Himself equal to God. He's showing that He has the authority to call His disciples not only to be saved, but also to obey. We don't have the authority to dictate to Jesus when and where and how we will follow Him. He is the authority. He speaks and we follow. This is not discipleship by committee, all right? We can't take or leave what we don't like. Disciples do not have the option to barter with Christ. It's also, it's interesting to note that those who came to Jesus on their own terms, yet still desiring to follow Christ, didn't end up coming. I mean, think about the rich young ruler, right? Right? He he came to Jesus desiring to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, no problem. Just give up your riches and come and follow after me. And he couldn't do it. Think about the man who who came. Uh, Caleb mentioned this. And and Jesus said, hey, I don't have a home. I don't have a place to lay my head. There was another man that came and he said, hey, I want to come and I want to follow you. Just let me go back and say goodbye to those back home and then I'll come and follow you. Jesus refused him. Or the man who simply wanted to bury his father. He just wanted to honor his father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But the true disciples, those who Jesus called, they actually do it. They go and they proclaim the kingdom of God. All these men that came to Jesus, each of them were desiring to follow him, but with conditions. Conditions. They weren't willing to give it all up. They weren't willing to to lay down all their their previous allegiances to follow Christ, even though their desire was still there. And Christ said, you've got to give it all up. And we see that happen with these disciples. They gave up everything. They laid down their possessions. They laid down their identity. They laid down their family. They laid down their jobs. They laid down all those things, all those allegiances to follow Christ. Christ And those who Jesus called authoritatively did just that. They left everything to follow him. Jesus called and they answered. In this call, this this call to salvation, this call to discipleship, delay is not an option. Did you notice that? The authority over discipleship calls and the true disciples third respond immediately. Look again at verses 18 through 20. It says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. In both cases, both with Andrew and Simon, with James and John, Jesus calls, and they followed how? Followed immediately. Follow without question, without delay, without challenge. This call to discipleship is an immediate call. Listen, folks, to delay is to disobey. God is not honored in our half-hearted attentions to follow Him, but yet with no follow-through. He's not honored in that. He's not pleased with that. When has delayed obedience ever been a good thing in the Bible? I mean, think about Jonah. What was the result of Jonah's delayed obedience? Pretty sure God sent a storm to crush the boat that he was in, and he spent three days in the belly of a fish. Was God delighted in that? No. That's what it took to get Jonah to obey. But God was not honored in his delayed obedience. Delayed obedience is always disobedience. Jesus requires an immediate response For us as believers, when we read Scripture, when we come across the passage and it convicts us, we are to respond then. Not eventually. Like, oh man, that's a good idea. I'm going to have to do that at some point in my life when I'm ready to give up my sin. When I'm ready to stop making life about myself, I will do that thing. No. It's the same way when we're speaking with our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and they come and they come around us and they say, listen man, Scripture is clear here. You need to be doing this. You need to give up this and do this. And you know that the Holy Spirit is working through them. You're feeling that conviction. But yet you say, I'll do it later. That's never a good thing. When we study Scripture, when we meet together, we seek to know who God is and who we are in light of Him. And as a byproduct of that, what we should do in response we don't just end there, oh hey, look at that, God is gracious, awesome, amen. Or, hey, I'm a sinner, recognize it, I get it. But we're called to respond. We're called to do something different from here. The Word of God is supposed to impact our lives and our hearts so that we're not the same. We change, we do, we grow, we follow. This is not a passive thing, right? We can't just pray that God will do this in our lives. Like I can read the Bible and I can sit and I can wait for God to just pick me up and move me. Change everything. It's always a matter of active conformity. Actively working towards us as we identify these things and we know that we're supposed to do them. We seek, we pray for the will of God to be clear and then we, we follow in what we know to be true. And in doing that, in being active in our obedience in the little things, we become more perceptive of God's will to follow immediately without question when God makes something clear. The more we're obedient, the more it begins obedience by the grace of God. As we prepare ourselves through reading His Word and responding, it's easier for us to then respond immediately, right? Right? So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, all i got to do is read my Bible and pray, and then God's just going to flip a switch for me, I'm sorry. Flip a switch is in like, oh, I know what I need to do, and now I need to do it. And by God's grace, you will be able to do it. You don't know how. It won't be easy, but God will give the grace to walk in what He's given you. And even in this authoritative call to immediately become disciples of Jesus, I mean, God even gives grace here. And we see it in the text. We also see in this text that, that fourth, there is a process of discipleship. We call it disciple making for a reason. It doesn't happen in a moment. It's not an overnight flip the switch kind of deal. It's a process you have to make. And making, when, when have you ever been able to make something and it didn't take any time, right? I mean, you make a cake and it takes time. Perfect obedience we know is an impossibility. Jesus didn't say to them, follow me and I will instantly make you fishers of men. You will instantly be fishers of men. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. That's an important translation. I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me and you will be in the process of becoming fishers of men. And we'll see as we make our way through Mark that these guys did not get it right away. Just because Andrew and Simon and James and John happened to follow immediately, they still didn't get it. They're bickering with one another all the time over who's the greatest. You know, They're constantly fighting and warring. They're, they're whining and complaining. They're keeping children from coming to Jesus. They're just misunderstanding. Jesus calls them little faiths every single day. He even calls Peter Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Judas Iscariot betrays him. Everybody abandons him. And and Peter outright denies him three times. Some disciples. But after the resurrection, their eyes are opened to see who he truly is. And they are willing at that point, though imperfectly, to follow Jesus through persecution, through suffering, through imprisonment, And even to death. They were in the process of becoming fishers of men. They were in the process of discipleship. The process of dying to self and living for Christ. The process that all who are called to salvation must embrace. Those who have been saved have been called to discipleship. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. There's your call to salvation saved by the crucifixion of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's your call to discipleship. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. If you are Christians, you have recognized that you have sinned against God, that you have rejected Him, that you have rebelled against Him in thought and word and deed. You've tried to live as if this is your world and your God. Right? You've tried to live without Him. But by God's grace, your eyes have been opened to that and you have responded. You have turned away from your sin and now are following by faith Christ who died and gave His life as a sacrifice for your sin. You are waiting in the hope of reconciliation through the resurrection of Christ, longing for the day when you will see Him face to face. You will be with your Lord and Savior. If that is you, if that describes you, then you have no option to claim certain things for yourself. That salvation, that claim to salvation, and not discipleship. It's just not there. We are to live in such a way that we die to ourselves. The life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. That's how we live. We saw last week that faith is more than some blind intellectual assent to a truth that has no real bearing on our lives. That's not what it's meant to be like. Like I believe that Pluto is a planet. That's not the way belief works out in Scripture. We are not Jesus' disciples because we simply learn about Him, but because we follow Him. All right? It's not enough for us to just learn something about. We're not disciples because we learn about, we're disciples because we learn how. You cannot be a disciple unless you do, unless you act, unless you live, not for yourself, but for Christ. Another sports illustration. You guys recognize that that sports fans are not players, right? They're not. Sports fans are not players. I mean, you can buy the jerseys. You can go to every game. You can learn every play. You can learn everything there is to know about the team. But that doesn't make you a player. You're not a player unless you learn how to play and you achieve that level, right? You you work to that end and begin, you actually get. A, I'm like Jim. Jim may have graduated from the University of Oklahoma, but he's not really a Sooner, not in the football sense of the word, right? He's not a an Oklahoma Sooner that runs out there onto the field and plays the game. I mean, he knows how the, all about the game. He can talk your leg off about the game, but he does, he's not a player. He's not a Sooner, right? There's a difference, a marked difference. He's never put on a helmet. He's never put on the gear. He's never walked down on the field. He's never, you know, he's never taken it down. I mean, this was Rudy's big dilemma, right? He wasn't recognized as a player for Notre Dame unless he got into one play, right? Even Rudy understood the difference between a player and a fan, even though it cost him a lot. You are not a disciple because you learn about discipleship. Right? This is big. Because learning about discipleship is easy. Learning to be a disciple is hard. You are a disciple as you lay down all allegiances in order to be conformed to Christ and to participate in the process of, by making disciples. Knowing about the process means nothing unless you do it. It means nothing. There's a lot that I cannot recommend about Rick Warren, but on one point, he gets it absolutely right. He says, you only believe what you actually do. You only believe what you actually do. You might believe, in a sense... That's a really good thing for families to practice family devotions. But if you don't do them with your family, you don't really believe them. You may believe it's important for all, all people, all, all Christians, all those who, who bear the name of Christ to go out and share their faith, to evangelize. But if you don't do it, you don't really believe it. It's the same way with making disciples. If I'm not intentional about making disciples, I don't really believe that it's all that important. You only believe what you actually do. If you don't practice them, you don't really believe them. You're just a fan of them. We all have to ask this question of ourselves. Are you going to be a fan of Christ or are you going to be a follower of Christ? Are you going to be a fan of Christ or a follower of Christ? Are you just going to sit by as an onlooker as an an attendee, as a consumer, who is always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth? Or are you going to get in the game and be a disciple? Are you willing to die to yourself, to die to everything, in order to truly follow Christ? So Jesus... Savior and Lord authoritatively and immediately calls us to salvation and to this process of discipleship. But in it, he also defines for us the purpose of discipleship. He says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. You will be men and women who catch people. Right? That's what you are to do. It's interesting, of all the analogies that he could have given them, that he uses this one. I mean, obviously, you kind of think circumstantially that works out, but I think that Jesus is more intentional than that. Jesus could have called them servants, but he didn't. Because his intention is more that we just do good works. That we work really hard doing all sorts of random things for Jesus. He didn't call them shepherds who were to tend the sheep of those that Jesus himself had gathered. He didn't call them priests who are to pray and intercede as prayer warriors for other people. He didn't call them He didn't call them craftsmen who were to build others up. And he didn't even call them farmers who were meant to plant churches. He called them fishers of men. All those things could be included in what a disciple of Jesus does, but as a disciple, you are to fish for men who by implication will also fish for men. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. Right? You are in process, but you are helping others in the process. A disciple is those is to catch those who aren't disciples, right? If you're going to be a fisher of men... You're catching men, once they were not with you, now they are with you, right? And making them, or helping them, to become disciples as well. You're catching those who are not, and you're helping them to become. Fishers of men catch them, and just like Jesus, they do it by proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming for salvation, proclaiming to let the gospel apply to every aspect of their lives. I think that this is an important distinction. A lot of times we make this separation between evangelism and discipleship, right? Like based upon context, evangelism is for unbelievers, discipleship is for believers. So I can focus my attention to making disciples just by focusing on believers. Well, you're going to run out of believers, right? It's all gospel ministry. I mean, this is what Christ's disciples do. To make disciples. And we get a pretty clear indication from Matthew 28, verses 29 and 20, of what that looks like. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. You don't baptize people who are already believers, right? By baptism is meant to symbolize that entrance into the covenant community, that their identification with Christ and with his church. Right? That's, that's the beginning of this discipleship process that started even before that, before they were even believers, and it continues until they have now applied the gospel to every aspect of their lives so that they observe all that Christ commanded. There's not a distinction between evangelism and discipleship. It's all gospel ministry. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're applying it to every aspect of life. That's what disciples are to do. That's what we're all called to do. And what we do is meant to have an eternal impact on those we go fishing for. This is the difference between gospel proclamation and and being proclamation-centered and being sort of work-centered, trying to slip the gospel in the back door. What we do... Is supposed to have an eternal impact on the people around us. If we're just good people that do good things, how what's gonna make us distinct from the benevolent Muslim or the faithful atheist, whatever that might be? You know, this like people can do good things. What what separates us, what makes us distinct, is the fact that we proclaim the gospel. I mean you think about this concept of being a fisher of men, of going fishing for men. Who's Everybody's been fishing, right? Has anyone not been fishing here? right? You ever think about the consequence, the effect on the fish? Is a fish ever the same after it's been caught? You know? Like, a fish that takes a bite of the hook is never the same. A fish that is caught up in the net is never the same. Even the ones that get away. Even the ones who we release. Even the ones who... We might happen to leave up on the shore for the birds to eat. They're never the same. This is the consequence of gospel ministry. It has its effect. The gospel will, God will, by, by his nature, according to his call, keep some. And even those who are let go, those who are released, they bear the effects of gospel ministry. For a fish, it's a hole. You know, they've got a hole in their mouth or something like that. They bear the weight of that forever, Right? For those who reject the gospel and walk away, they're going to be judged more harshly because they've, they've heard the gospel and they have not believed. Those who are caught are transformed by it. Their life is never the same when you hear the gospel. It's never the same. And if you look back in your life and you can't see gospel change in your life, you need to ask yourself the question, what kind of fish are you? Are you that fish that's been caught that's out of water? Are you still swimming around? Is your life really any different? And if not, what needs to change? Right? How is the gospel going to come to bear in your life? True disciples are affected inside and out. Their lives are changed, and they change the way they live. Now, you may not be called, like, in the same way that Andrew and Simon and James and John are called, to leave everything, you know, to literally... Just walk away from it all. But you are all called to be followers of Christ and to be fishers of men. You are called away from yourself for the purposes of Christ. And this is not about looking back at all the times where maybe I didn't get it right. You know, God's intention in calling us to, to be disciples is not so that we can look back over, over the X number of years of our life that we've claimed to be a Christian and just haven't got it and so we can feel bad about ourselves. But it's for here and now. How will you respond in this moment? You've been called today to be a disciple. You've been called today to become a fisher of men. And how will you respond to that? I mean, forget what lies behind. Press forward to what remains ahead looking for that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're to do. So how will you respond to this? Will you die to yourself and live for Christ? Each one of us here now, in the presence of God's Word, have been called to discipleship. Will you leave everything to follow Him? Let's pray together. Father, we see from Your Word that that there is no distinction between a call to salvation and a call to discipleship. That... That you're not calling us just so that we might believe and continue in life as we know it. But that the gospel comes to bear in our lives and we're forever changed. God, I pray that it would have that effect in our lives today. That we would not be the same after this moment. That this would be a call, a reminder to repent and believe, to leave and follow we thank you for your word, we thank you for Christ and his sacrifice that you have not abandoned us to our sin, to our hatred to our rebellion against you but because of your loving sacrifice through Jesus Christ you have bought and paid for those whom you have called and that demands our life demands our all God I pray that as we sing this next song that we'll take these things to heart and that we would immediately get up and follow. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.